What's up, everybody? This is Justin Welsh, and you are listening to Sassholes. See you inside. Welcome to Sassholes, a show dedicated to issues within the software as a service industry. We are revenue apps with a edge. Thank you. Carney, you got no edge? Edge, 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 edge. Jamie, Jason, KG, and myself, Pete, have a combined eh, 100 years of making interesting decisions. Please subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Today, our guest is Justin Welsh. Over the last decade, he's helped build two 50 million plus ARR companies, teams of over 150 people, and raised over 300 million in venture capital. That's good eating. Then in 2019, he burned out. Toasty. So he walked away from high, a high-paying executive job at a high-growth startup in Los Angeles to work for himself. He wanted to completely redesign his life with more intention. But before we get to Justin, this episode is brought to you by NeuroNoodle. Hey, parents of athletes get a doodle their noodle, which is a brain map. After the season, before the season, during the season, got to have a baseline to compare it to. You get a physical every year, right? Well, get a brain checkup now. Schedule an appointment now at neuronoodle.com. KG. Yes, Pete. Karnak. What? My friend David lost his ID. Now he's just Dav. <laughs> Leave us some comments on our blog at sassholes.net. KG, you got any oh. shout outs? Yes, I got shout outs. The dad jokes, though. I love that every there. I'm reading them in the show notes and they're funny every single time. Good work, Pete. Um, I got some happy birthdays here. So happy birthday to uh, Gary Carlson, formerly of ZipRecruiter and Alan Jones, uh, formerly of ZipRecruiter, uh, CEO currently of Bambi in Los Angeles. Happy birthday, AJ. And happy birthday to Matt Gustin, formerly of business.com. Gosh, back in 2001 to 2010. And a happy birthday today to Brooke Gollenbeck, who's currently at Rippling and formerly at ZipRecruiter. Here's a fun fact for you. Brooke Gollenbeck owns the record for the top two biggest sales in all of Rippling's history. That is one badass saleswoman right there. I'm a big fan of Brooke Gollenbeck. And that's it. Ryan Kubaki, I want to give him a shout out. Um, he's the CEO of Eris Prism. He just became the CEO there. So I want to give him a shout out. Good friend of mine. Um, another guy, Steven Siegel, but I like to call him Steven Seagal. He's, he is above the, uh, the law. Um, he just started a new job over at Live Person. I believe he was in your world at one time, Pete. Is that right? Rings the bell. I probably can't. I was always, he was just, he would book meetings with me and I'm always like, I need to meet with you. Uh, because, uh, and then Mike Dutter, he is three years at Oracle. Those are the three I'm giving shout outs to today. Way to go, Dutter. Hey, Mike Taylor, MBA, PMP for four years at Click Dimensions. PMP, I wonder if that's international. Would that be pimp? Congre- uh, Scott Ang, starting a new position as VP Operations at Nurture Life. Carney, you got any shout-outs for yourself? I thought we already did it, but yeah, I'm taking a new job at People AI. VP of Revenue Operations, Field Congratulations. Oh. Congratulations. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a company I was targeting, and we made it happen. What, what's this title again? Let me write this down. VP of, VP what? of Revenue Operations, 
become a field strategy. So I'm out there working with all the RevOps people. Awesome. And how do you work with people AI? All nice right. work. All right. Congratulations, Jamie. About time. So, so KG, how did you, how do you know Justin? How'd you guys get together? I heard KD was involved, the KD, Kevin Dorsey. So here's the funny story. By the way, when you say KD, it's Kevin Durant. So he can't go as KD. He owns those Uh, two. I don't know. Justin, you know, KD, KD owns KD. KD has been doing his thing longer than Kevin Durant has. Uh, I think you're right. I think you're right. right. So here's the fun fact, Pete. This is literally the first time that Justin Welsh and I have actually seen each other face to face and spoken on uh, any sort of uh, form other than electronic mail of some kind. But I tell you what, I have watched Justin from afar. He's a Santa Monica uh, executive, used to be with Patient Pop way back in the day, and they were literally blocks away from the headquarters of uh, of ZipRecruiter and just watched uh, the kinds of things that he did. And then, of course, more importantly, other people uh, talked very highly about Justin and the things that he accomplished, the founders of Patient Pop. Uh, Kevin Dorsey, our friend KD, um, spoke very highly of him as well as a bunch of others. And, uh, and so I've been tracking him down for, uh, for quite some time. And honestly, the decision that he made pre-COVID, well before COVID, is, uh, is one of the, the things I respect the most about Justin. And I hope that uh, um, and know that we will be talking about that further uh, today. Justin, thanks so much for coming on the show. Nice to meet you, man. Yeah, it's it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm I'm intentionally not the easiest guy to track down, but um, but here we are, all four of us. So I'm excited to do uh, the show, and uh, KD speaks highly of y'all. So uh, excited to chat. I'm really intrigued by that uh, that part in your profile that we talked about. So you were at you were an executive mm-hmm. at a high pain where you just and you were burnout. So mm-hmm. go. Could you just go through that? I mean, that's going to be a, a huge topic, but there's a lot of people suffering, especially today. Yeah. And neurofeedback is a great way at NeuroNoodle, but mental health is a um, huge component today. I'm sure there's so many people dealing with burnout. I was one of those, by the way. Um, I, I, I chose a different path, but go through that process if you could on how you just sort of got up, walked away and, and started over, right? Yeah, sort of, right? I think there's probably some nuance there. That's that's important, but it goes back to 2009. Uh, I had been in sales for eight years, seven years. I was 28 years old and I got, I was really terrible at it. I was never very good at the first three or four companies that I was at. I got fired three times really quickly. Um, and I broke into technology in 2009 by kind of putting a fabricated resume on Monster, to be honest, right? And got a call from a really, really small tech company. They had about nine people. And this will help provide some context for the burnout. But got hired at a company called ZocDoc, spent five years there. I was the 10th employee. I got promoted a bunch of times. And they were very notorious for the work ethic there. Um, you worked hard. You worked 100-hour weeks. People were getting fired left and right. It was difficult. And so I did that for five years and, and survived. <laughs> and then uh, surviving that, <clears throat> I parlayed that into an executive role at 33. And then I spent five years growing patient pop. And I looked at myself as a stretch hire, guy who gets it to 1 million, 2 million, 3 million. They come in, hire someone who's done it before, and, and away I go. But I got lucky. I, I got to about 51 million in four and a half years. And Burnout started to happen not because of hard work. I think burnout is attributed to hard work. I think that's false. I think that burnout is generally related to lack of control. Um, I can work hard all day. I still do. I work 
you know, 15 hour days every day for myself because I like to work, <laughs> but I like control. And as the company got bigger, as my team got bigger, as the revenue milestones got larger, um, I, I started to, to try and find control in other ways by micromanaging, getting in the weeds, doing a lot of the things that we all do when we can't figure out the solution to our problems. And so um, I gained 40 pounds. I was drinking way too much. I was eating way too much. I was sleeping way too little. And in December of 18, I had a really massive panic attack. Um, EM, like my wife had to call 911, EMTs had to come out, all that thought I was dying. It was the weird, you know, strangest thing that had ever happened to me. And <clears throat> that December, I went to my co-CEOs, Luke and Travis, and said, hey, I think it's time for a change. They asked me to stay through July. I ended up staying through August. Um, and that first eight months of 20, uh, 2019 is when I figured out, hey, if I'm going to go out on my own and do something different, I better... I better have a strategy. Uh, so I created that strategy over those eight months. And on October, uh, August 1st of uh, 2019, I, I walked, uh, walked away from the job. I think there's different ways you can suffer through burnout. And I think you're right. It, control Certainly. is probably one of them. Another one is just feeling like you're not getting what you're worth and, and working way too much. And there's no reward in that. You know, the comp- a lot of companies out there, and these are for the, the newer listeners out there, a company is certain companies are going to work you until you scream. I can't do it anymore. Right. And, and usually the most valuable person in, in the entire company is overworked because everyone wants to work with that person. They're spread way too thin. And the best thing you can do is be vocal about that with your person. Otherwise you're going to deal with burnout. Um, but I think walking away and just sort of saying, Hey, I need an eight month hiatus. You know, the, the I was just talking to another guy um, the other day who said, yeah, he did the same thing. He walked away and went skiing for a year with his wife. He goes, we lived like skiers. And he goes, it allowed me to reset my life. We could barely afford anything. We were all our money. We were broke, but it was the best year of our lives uh, together because it allowed us to, um, to reset. And so I think that's, I I, got to give you kudos for that let that now looking back, you know, hindsight's 2020 that were sort of great indicators that burnout was there. And, and maybe you didn't know it until you had the panic attack, but I don't think everyone's going to have severe panic attacks Yeah, when they're living in burnout. Yeah. I think um, some indicators for me were like very stacked to-do lists. Like I couldn't work through a to-do list. Um, everything became, everything was urgent and important all the time. Because I was un, I was unable to get through certain things that were truly urgent and important to get to the next one, and they just stacked and stacked and stacked. And pretty soon you're looking, and you're like, I've got seven major projects. I, I I can't outsource or delegate effectively. I can't figure out how to solve these problems. And I think the problem in sales leadership, uh, specifically in sales, it's a very ego driven world, and so very infrequently. Do you have men or women who are running the sales organization who are willing to throw up their hand and say, Hey, I'm struggling here. Like, I can't, I can't figure this out. I need some help. It's very like chest thumpy. It's very me, me, me. I've got this. And that's why I think especially in startups, especially in startups, Justin, absolutely. Totally. And, And I think, I think because a lot of sales leaders are uncomfortable doing that, then they burn you a crisp and they get fired. Right. And so like, I'm a big narrative guy. I like to control my own narrative. When, I, when I'm going to break from a company, I want that narrative to be clean and crisp. And so rather than burning myself to a crisp and going down you know, and getting fired, um, 
I wanted to take control and be proactive. And so that's what I did. I went to my CEOs first <laughs> and said, hey, this is happening. Let's figure out an exit strategy so that when we break, number one, I can get my break. Number two, you guys have tons of heads up because I respect you and I love this business. And number three, we keep a, a cordial relationship for the rest of our lives, which is actually how I ended up going back to Patient Pop for a second stint as their interim chief revenue officer in 2020. If you were to wind the clock back, mm -hmm. what would you do differently? Because you went to the CEO and I, I know those guys, I actually interviewed for that CRO uh, job and man, they spoke so highly of you, by the way. Thank you. Um, of course. And, um, but you, you don't want to get to that point where there's a panic attack. And so as a, as a mm -hmm. leader, if you were to wind the clock back, what are like three things that you would do differently? to avoid getting to the panic attack and then the inevitable discussion of, no, let's part ways as friends. Yeah, I would have spoken up probably 18 to 24 months prior, um, a little louder than I did about some very specific roles um, that are required to build an effective business past 50 million and recurring. And, and now as companies are making more money and valuations are getting higher, maybe it's a hundred million. But you know, listening to what Jamie's uh, going into revenue operations, this was a gap for us. We had a very small rev ops or sales ops program. Sales enablement was a gap for us. We had a one, a one person show in the enablement department at 150 sales employees. It was way too thin. Um, I think getting a coach would have been really helpful for me early on. I think um, if I rewind back to being 35, I'm 40 now, I probably had some of that ego thing going on where it's like, I don't need help. <laughs> I know what I'm doing. I don't need a coach, right? Uh, I, I wish I hadn't thought that way. Um, so those are some things that I would have done differently. I would have gotten a coach to help me see around some corners and I would have started to build the infrastructure of my business, um, not just thinking about AE, SDR, Money makers, right? Think about the infrastructure that needs to be in place. A lot of stress comes into play. You know, my mm -hmm. my my definition of stress is you, your actions don't match your goals or values, right? And that's kind of where you get at a crossroads. What either you're doing busy work to fill up time, or you're drinking to take up time to do something else because what what you're doing isn't matching your goals or values. That's where the vision board comes in. You know, the old school pictures you get, you have to be constantly reminded why you're there. And when that gets lost, then you just feel like you're running in place and you don't have control over the situation and then blah. Right. You're I think, I think to piggyback off of that, Pete, fire drills, right? Fire drills happen at every company, especially in startups. But when the fire drill has a desperate feel to it, it's not healthy, right? It's just not healthy. And you got to sort of, you got to sort of discern and look back when you just did a fire drill, was that a desperate fire drill? And if so, how do I avoid that moving forward? And if it continues at this company, how do I get out of that company? Well, there's only so many fire drills you can do before, you know, it's, it's crying wolf. Nobody, nobody believes you because at a small place, you know, there isn't anybody else. It's just you. Right. And you, you have to know how to, uh, value your time in order to show that, you know, you do need help because one person can't do it all. Look, I mean, may, maybe you can run a team of 10 tops, but then if you're going to have such control, getting past 10 is really, really tough. 
And, you know, 50 million seems to be like a number that, that I can think of that you get stuck at. If you don't have help at the next level, it's hard to get, get past that. So I totally get it. Yeah. And I think um, one of the thing that's probably important is just enjoyment and the truth of the matter. And I like, I'll say this out loud for anyone to hear. And I don't care how it hinders future job prospects. Should I ever decide to go back to work for, for someone else? But I don't, I don't like that stage of the business. I'm not interested in it. Like, I don't care about making levers one and 2% better to grow to hundred or 150 or 250. By the way, it, that doesn't mean that that's not awesome for someone else. It's great for other people who love that. I love growth. I love growth stage. Give me, mm-hmm. give me, give me one to 10 million. And I'm like, I'm happy. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and I'd rather go company to company, getting them to 10 or 20 million. That's, yeah. that's just enjoyable to me. So it was a, it was a factor of like stress and pressure, um, much of which was brought on by myself and not necessarily the situation. And it's also mm-hmm. just lacking in the enjoyment. Yeah, no doubt. Well, you've, you've really turned, I couldn't agree with you more, by the way, like those big hairy problems at the early stages, I, I you know, frankly, somebody said to me one time, Justin, man, you know, it must be so much fun over at, over at ZipRecruiter, like this, the ride that you've had. And I said, fun, <laughs> fuck that. Like golf is fun. Like I love playing golf. I love playing with my kids and playing video games and stuff like that. What we're doing is really hard, but it's the accomplishment that switches me on. I don't, wouldn't go so far as to say that it was fun. It's the, it's the accomplishment of, you know, breaking four minute mile and, and like, you know, d- jumping to a, a new height uh, and that accomplishment, but it's hard to do that. It's like, man, when you're about to puke running the fourth lap of a four minute mile, it's like, man, this is so much fun. No, God, no, it's not fun. So a- amen, Justin, like those, that, that is the accomplishment is fantastic. It would make me puke to go to a company to say, Hey, your goal this year is to grow by 3%. Uh, like that would make me sick, but, but you really have turned the corner and, and you p- posted on Twitter recently. So I'm not, uh, uh, I, I love to just state this outright. You, uh, you wrote that your business recently crossed $1.3 million in revenue. So you went from panic attack <laughs> I must be dying to eight month transition to doing your own thing. And now your business is doing $1.3 million in, in revenue, or at least one of your businesses is doing $1.3 yeah. million in revenue. How, how, tell us about that journey. How did you get to that point? That's absolutely amazing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting journey and it, it involves actually KD, Kevin Dorsey, who we were talking about a little earlier. Um, when I told my co-CEOs that I was going to be leaving my role, I did that in January or late December. I can't quite remember. And they asked me to stay till July and ended up being August. So from January 1st to August 1st of 2019, I decided that I needed to get attention. I wanted attention. I didn't really care what kind. I just wanted people to know my name, know my face, know my brand. I wanted people to see me everywhere. And so I started writing content on LinkedIn. A lot of people choose Twitter to be creators back in 2019, KD had started writing and he was getting kind of popular. And I was like, Oh, I'll do what Kevin Dorsey's doing and start writing. And so I started writing and I was writing about what I knew, how to build SaaS sales organizations and reading books on how to build, build my character and how to be polarizing and compelling and gain interest and all those different things. And it, it started to work. And I grew from couple thousand connections to maybe 21 or 25,000 connections. 
And my goal is to use this to build a consulting business. And so when I announced on August 1st that I was leaving, I had all these founders that were really reading my stuff and interested in bringing me on as a consultant. So my first business was your traditional consulting business. Um, and I kept growing, building, writing, consulting. And I sat down with KD one day over lunch and I said, I want to add a second revenue stream. I think I'm going to build a course. This is only courses were just starting to hit the market and, and you're seeing some folks. So I'm going to build a sales course for sales founders or for uh, SaaS founders. And he's like, you know, everyone's building a sales course. Why don't you teach people how you use LinkedIn? I was like, oh, that's interesting. So I went back through my DMs and yeah, there were some questions. There was like, hey, how do you build an SDR program, inbound marketing, all this stuff. Um, but most of the questions were like, how are you writing copy? How are you growing so fast? Why do you get so much engagement? What are you doing in the platform that I'm not doing? I'm writing things and getting crickets. And I was like, this is really interesting. So I decided to create a course on LinkedIn. And I was like, I don't want to be a LinkedIn guy. I don't want to, that's not what I want to be. Um, but I made it in 20 hours. I put it for 50 bucks and I sold 75,000 bucks worth of it. I was like, this is, this is awesome. So then I added LinkedIn coaching to my revenue stream and started charging a lot of money for that. And then I rebuilt the platform, uh, the, the course and I charged three X for 150. That course was done $300,000 in four months. Then I built a private community. I'm like, did you like the course? You should come into my community where we talk best practices, strategy. So suddenly I've got an 11 or 12 K MRR business, uh, you know, as, as a community. So now I've got, I've, pivoted away from consulting and I, I do straight advising for cash, no equity. I've got two, two or three digital products I sell. I've got a paid community and I've got a coaching program. And together throughout those four revenue streams, I work about 75% of what I used to work. And I actually, from a revenue and income perspective, make more than I did as an executive. That's amazing. I mean, that, that kudos to you. If, if we have uh, Pete, you should put in a round of applause right now. Um, so imagine there is one, but that, 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 that's actually a great story. I know there's a lot of people out there that, uh, including my wife have talked about something like that, but I think it's absolutely amazing. So, um, the question I have for you is like being a, 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 a like a creator, you know, you're in the creator economy. Um, can you give our listeners, you know, any type of understanding or learnings that you have now becoming one of those creators and how do you start that up? I mean, sounds to me, you had a background, but you just sort of put yourself out there, right? So how do you go about doing that for anyone who's thinking about doing this stuff? First thing is mindset. It's understanding why the creator economy exists. And I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll give you the easiest way to think about it. When I go to the gym, I get on the elliptical machine and I look to my right and ESPN is generally on the television. And on the television are two guys who have never played basketball having an argument about who's the greater all-time player, Kobe or LeBron. There's no answer. Whoa, 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 whoa. It's Jordan. <laughs> sure, Jordan, Jordan, whatever. Right? <laughs> there's, all, there's always- it's Jordan or Kobe, get LeBron yeah, out of here. Sure, sure. Jordan or LeBron. Uh, so there's no right answer. I mean, sure, we all have strong opinions, but it's two dudes. There's the right answer. It's Jordan. Sorry, this is interrupting. <laughs> no, no worries. There's two dudes who have never played the game arguing over something that is entirely subjective. Welcome to the internet. That's how the internet works. It's a bunch of people who have arguments about things that are completely subjective. Like, it doesn't matter what the two guys on television say. That has no impact on my life or no impact on anyone else's life. But suddenly Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok have given people like us the ability to go out 
and create content like the content I just described for a massive audience of 4.6 billion people who have internet connections. That's wild. So you can be a sportscaster, you can be a DJ, you can create music, you can host a podcast like you guys are doing. And there is no boundary to how far your message can go. And so I started to think about that and I thought, okay, if I have a product that costs 150 bucks, what percentage of 4.6 billion people do I need to reach each year to make a million dollars? It's very, 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 very minuscule. And when I realized that, I thought to myself, okay, knowing that these channels exist, I don't think I'll ever depend on one company to pay me my paycheck. When I invest money, I diversify my portfolio. So when I'm creating income, the most important thing in my life that keeps my family afloat, why am I not diversifying my portfolio there? So I created business after business after business that allowed me to go out and make sure if one fails, I still have three other in the hopper. And in 2022, I'm going to continue to add revenue streams so that I can diversify even further. Would you, um, I'm going to play with you for a second. You said specifically that you uh, do advisory straight cash, no equity. In the same vein of diversifying your portfolio, um, why wouldn't you take equity from time to time in companies for uh, advisory roles? And I'm not saying minuscule amounts. I mean, like, you know, yeah. market value for your, you know, for your service. Why, why wouldn't you take equity? Yeah, right now, I, a couple of different reasons. Uh, the first reason is I'm not entirely like money driven. So I'm not looking for a big pop for, for an advising client. I have equity in companies already that I've been previously worked at. I also invest, I angel invest. So I have, um, you know, my money tied to some, some companies who I believe very strongly in for the most part, if I'm going to trade my time today, it has to come at a premium monetary value that I've set for myself. And so if someone is willing to pay me that money, then I will take them on as a, as a cash-based client because every hour that I give away equity is so the idea that equity works is, is difficult for me because I've seen it not work for so many people. And so mm-hmm. I trade my time for money and then I take all the money that I earn and I reinvest it back into my businesses that don't require my time. And so time to me is the greatest thing that I can get right now. And I'm not going to do it on a 1% chance that a company might go public or have a meaningful exit. I'd rather make that couple thousand bucks and reinvest it into automation so that when I wake up tomorrow morning, I've made money while I sleep. That to me is much more enticing than uh, taking a wild bet or playing Russian roulette with a company. How do you deal with uh, SaaS founders that want to discount your time? I, I mean, I, I don't. I'm just very straightforward with my pricing. My pricing is super straightforward. I have one package that I offer. Um, oftentimes people will say it's expensive. And my, my typical retort to that is I charge on outcomes, not hours. So if I can give you, you can pay me 15,000 bucks and I save you a million dollars in two years worth of runway because you hired the right sales VP, then it's probably a good, pretty good ROI. Yeah, exactly. In, in other words, take it or leave it. I'm worth it. Totally. I don't, yeah, I don't need, I don't, I don't need the business because I have three other businesses. And when you're in a position of leverage, you can turn down bad fit clients. Absolutely. Amen to that. You know, you're uh, uh, one of the things I admired about you uh, and being at ZocDoc, by the way, cheese Louise, I, I can't even tell you how many times they came after me for a director of inside sales role. And I cannot tell you how many times I went, oh my God, there's no way I want to put myself in front of that freaking boss. Um, but you have an expertise in SMB. Uh, go-to-market strategies for SMB SaaS products. Um, we've got new 
sales leaders here, sales SaaS founders here. What are some of the keys uh, for SaaS founders and new sales leaders to excel in selling, you know, SMB SaaS SaaS products? Yeah, I think the the first thing is. I see a lot of SMB companies and SMB is not defined in my, in my world by price point. It's really by velocity. How fast does this thing move from start to finish? The average sales cycle in my last business, eight and a half days at ZocDoc, probably even faster. And so the things that I always think about is how do you build an assembly line, right? So if you go to a Ford plant, there's always a guy or gal putting a windshield on a car. Maybe it's a robot today. I don't know, right? I've been to one in a while, but like you put the windshield on the car. No one is going, hey, you should see me put the windshield on the car. I do it this really neat and interesting way. I like to spin it first and then I pop. No, everyone does it exactly the same, always, right? Go, 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 move, move, move. Let's get these cars built. And that's what it's like to build an SMB SaaS team is there's not a whole lot of room for flexibility in your sales process. Your sales process has to be very, very fast. It has to be very, very rigid. Sure, there's you can do demos differently and people have their own personality and so on and so forth. But we move deals from stage to stage very quickly based on what we know has worked in the past. So the best thing that I always recommend founders do early on is they take a look at their last 10 or 20 deals that have gone through the sales cycle in the way that they expected it. They lay those out from start to finish, from the moment that customer learned about your brand to the moment they're signing on the dotted line. They lay those out all together and they look for commonalities. How did these deals move through the sales cycle? Were the same decision makers come in at the same time with the same message? What were the most common objections? How did we move them from point A to point B? And you reverse engineer your sales cycle. And then every single quarter, you look at your sales cycle from start to finish and you say, where do we think we can make this slightly faster? Because people are always worried about close rate, average contract value. All those things are really important. But if you can move twice as fast, you can do twice as much inside the same given period of time. So for me, building that fast assembly line is all about really using data and analytics to understand your sales cycle. Hey, I think I think you hit a, a key point here. And I feel this trap almost across every sales organization I talk to. And, and we call ourselves the revenue ops with an edge, but revenue operations or sales operations today in most companies is used as a ad hoc reporting mechanism, those people are key to exactly what you said. If you have a true sales ops person, a true rev ops person, they should be spending all their time looking at how do I scale and how do I expedite the sales process so that salespeople can be focused more on selling and less on you know, all the, all the nuanced administrative stuff. And I feel like too many times we have sales ops people in, at companies that are really just sort of pacifying the administrative process and they're not thinking of scale. They don't have the expertise in doing that. The data analytics, you, if you're going to hire for a sales ops person, in my opinion, and correct me if I'm wrong, Justin, you want to hire data analytics and you want to hire somebody, an operator that thinks about scale. And thinks about uncovering revenue. I don't yeah. want a police officer. Like I don't need someone to tell me that Jim didn't enter 11 Salesforce calls. That's Jim's responsibility. And then his manager's responsibility, not the police officer group of sales. Or people AI can do it for you. Or people AI. There you go. Good plug. Um, so, so what I love is I'll take a guy that I brought onto my team. And I think of RevOps, the leader of RevOps is like my right-hand person. I brought on a guy named Jeff Ignacio. He now leads RevOps for the West Coast and for Amazon Web Services. Um, and Jeff was my right-hand man. And 
the things that he used to do for me were not like, hey, someone didn't enter a Salesforce report. He would pull things and say, did you know that if Bobby and Colsom only sold to dentists and not to doctors, we would have done 1.1 million in additional revenue last quarter? Those are like, those are massive pieces of data that sometimes sales leaders like myself and, and like us, we don't necessarily always know how to find. And so having that really good quant person who can dig through the data and uncover that hidden revenue makes my job twice as easy. And so I, that's how I think about RevOps. Enough police policing, right? Give me, give me the revenue uncovering. Oh my God. <laughs> we're having Jamie, or sorry, we're having... Um... Uh, Jeff on the show in February. Great. I worked. I I worked with him at Upkeep for a hot moment. You're so right, Justin. A great RevOps leader gives me insights. Were you aware? Did you know? <laughs> if only we did. And it was like nine, ten o'clock at night. He'd come to me with these insights about how you know where where things were working or where things were not working, and not that that police officer. Just an amazing partner, and I I think the world of him. Justin, what's your ideal customer profile? Who's calling you up? What are the problems? Uh, what's your sweet spot? Company size, revenue, and so forth. In case there's anybody listening out there who would like your services. Yeah, I keep a really tight niche because I, I know my value and where I'm competent and where I'm incompetent. Um, so I do early, I'll, I'll define this at the end. I do early stage SMB SaaS founders in the healthcare technology vertical. So generally what, I, what I'm looking at is a company between one and 10 million in recurring revenue. Um, they generally have one channel for, for their sales and marketing. It's either inbound or outbound usually. Um, they, they don't know how to build a team to scale up whatever channel they've uncovered. And they're always in the healthcare technology vertical. ACV less than 30K, sales cycle less than 30 days. So that's my mantra. Less than 30K in 30 days. If you're in healthcare, you're the company for me. Uh, if you're enterprise or mid-market, I refer that out to people a lot smarter than, than I am. Sales cycle, short, transactional. What's a fancy word? Velocity? Is that what everybody's calling it today? Well, yeah, I call it sales cycle, yeah. but yeah, there's there's all kinds of interesting sales velocity equations which spit out a number that that doesn't mean all that much. But yeah, high high velocity. It's the it's yeah. not transactional. It's high velocity. Um, I got yeah. it. Yeah. By the way, velocity and sales cycle. You don't know it until it's done. It's a it's a historical data point, right? You don't know. Like you, I hear people all the time saying it's a ninety day sales cycle. Well, you could be at day eighty nine, and it feels like it's day one. You know what I mean? Like, you don't know, like, oh, it's 90 days. Tomorrow they're going to sign. It, it's the stop focusing on the sales cycle and start focusing on the value that you can bring to your customer and the steps that you're taking to get there. And as long as you focus on the next step and not focus on the overall, I think it just helps the sales process in general. Do you agree with that, I Justin? I, I yep. agree. Um, I agree that by understanding how to give value to your customer, that you generally will likely move the sales cycle more quickly. I do think there's a really good way that you can dive deep into commonalities. That's like a huge thing that I do, which is here are 20 deals. Here's how they behaved. What does an average deal look like that goes through 12 days, 15 days, eight days, three days? And how do we reverse engineer our customer journey? Not our buying, not our seller's journey but how our customers buy. How do we help our customers move from stage one to two to three to four based on all the learnings we've had historically from all of the other customers who have already moved through the sales cycle in a relatively fast fashion? Doesn't mean it's going to work every time, but I care about likelihoods. Just increase the likelihood that it moves there faster. Increase the likelihood that it moves faster. 
You know, I, my gut tells me, Justin, that your bullshit meter is extremely high. And when you're doing pipeline reviews with people and founders and sales leaders, that um, you're very quick to say, that's not a deal because it doesn't meet criteria. And if you're talking about probabilities, then, then you're likely somebody who is going to be very judicious about how we invest time into a company. If they're at day 89, but they've been blowing smoke up our butts, you're, you're not going to say, well, let's keep doing this, that, and the other. I, I don't know. You, you tell me. Yeah. For, for me, like I, I am, I, I try and look at pipeline objectively, right? So there's both a qualitative and quantitative way to look at your pipeline, which is, okay, here are all the general milestones that a buyer goes through before they say, yes, we're ready to buy. Let's look at this deal. Okay, great. We have a total of eight milestones. We have achieved seven of those milestones. So objectively, looking at the data, it looks like this deal is going to come through if we get them to milestone eight. That's sort of the objective look. Then you have all the stuff, the qualitative stuff that you have to get from the sales rep. What's your vibe? How do you feel? How are the decision makers talking? Do you sense another competitor? A lot of times managers or leaders throw that stuff away. They're like data driven, right? But not everything works on data. There's always qualitative stuff. There's always a hunch, a gut check. And I think the best leaders use both of those things to understand whether something is real or not. And so that, that's how I think about it is really turning over both stones to say, is this deal truly real? The data says it is, but does my salesperson also say it is? How much of a cadence review do you have uh, uh, if it's a 30-day sale, sales cycle compared to some of these longer cycles of these bigger SaaS companies? I mean, we were kind of A-B testing cadences always. Uh, so I don't necessarily know at what stage we reviewed or day. Most Kevin Dorsey was doing most of that stuff, right? So he, he ran the inside sales program from, from a whole. I was, for the most part, focused on acquiring new talent. So Katie would probably have a, a better answer. But I know that we implemented Sales Loft and that Katie went through a pretty rigorous um, process with a company called RevShop who built all of our cadences and we just ran A-B tests constantly. We were, we were a hypothesis and experiment driven sales organization, which means that every month we were making a new hypothesis. We were trying one new experiment at a time. We understood what are our fail fast metrics? What makes this succeed? Like when, when do we pull the, when do we pull this thing and say, this thing's not working, right? And we got to stop right away. How do we understand whether it worked or not? Katie was in charge of a lot of great experiments. And that's why he's a really stellar inside sales leader who, you know, everyone wants to hire. <laughs> uh, let's talk commonalities. Uh, if you're going to look at the top 20 deals, what are the things that you look for to go and find more of them? I mean, is it NAT codes, company size, revenue, what, what do you look at? Yeah, for me, I come from a, a healthcare background. So I'll give you an example of some things we, we might look at. Uh, I like, like what I might call triple commonalities when prospecting. Hey, we've signed up a bunch of orthopedic surgeons. Therefore, orthopedic surgeons are good prospects. Are they? Let's take a look at the orthopedic surgeons we've signed up. Well, on average, the orthopedic groups that we've signed up have 3.5 total providers in their practice. So is a one-person ortho orthopedist a good prospect? Maybe not, right? So now we have orthopedists who have three or more providers in their practice. Let's continue to take a look through these top 20 deals that we've recently signed. Of these 20, 17 of them are paying for Yelp advertisements. Of these 20, 13 of them are 
putting their schedule on ZocDoc. Of these 20, 11 of them have claimed their Google My Business profile. Okay, cool. We're starting to get a look at what a real customer looks like, right? And so usually to me, it's the intersection of three things, especially in healthcare. What's their specialty? Where are they located? Top 25 MSA, metropolitan statistical area. They spend a lot of money. And are they currently spending money on their practice? If those three things are true, they are more likely to hear us pitch our product or service to their practice for purchase. So that's how I think about commonalities, ideal customer profiles, things like that. That's just like a high level, I guess. Dude, love that. Um, let's shift gears uh, a little bit to your uh, to your business and uh, side hustles. You have some strong opinions on um, side hustles. Talk to me, Goose. Yeah, I mean, I think... I think we're entering a really strange, not strange time. That's probably not the right word, but different time where you have sort of the old school and in the new school, at least what I'm seeing. Let's take a look at companies like Gong, Outreach, Gravy, companies whose salespeople and employees are currently on social media, building brands, right? And taking consulting clients. I know those people, right? A lot of them are in my, my private community. And those companies encourage that because the more the more front and center their employees are in the B2B world, the more likely those companies are to install outreach or install Gong. But you have a very old school mentality in a lot of companies where they say, you know, nine to five is our time. And we have an agreement in place with you that outside of working for us, you can't work for anyone else. How do you not want to build a business full of intrapreneurs and entrepreneurs? Like when I see someone who's building a side hustle, I see autonomy, motivation, intelligence, an understanding of marketing, an understanding of attention, an understanding of how to sell. Those six things, how are those not valuable in your sales or marketing or customer success organization? But these companies that are old and antiquated continue to put the clamp down. And what's happening is these folks are doing one of two things. They're going to companies who support them. And that's we all know it's great to support our employees, or they're going and doing their own thing. Because right now with the pandemic, even though it's kind of coming hopefully to a close, right? Uh, you can move to a place where cost of living is low. You can go figure out how to niche down and find a client that'll pay you a couple thousand bucks. You land a few of those and suddenly your SDRs and your account executives are making the same amount of money working for themselves, living in, with a, in a better cost of living area. So I'm a huge fan of side hustles because I want to build a company of entrepreneurs because that's how I think you you find top talent. I mean, ZipRecruiter Zip was literally formed as a side hustle with the four founders. They, they, they literally on yeah, kitchen table after hours, that's what they did. Um, I, I know a company that told me recently that they do not want their anybody in their company to do any sort of podcasts, broadcasts, LinkedIn, public, any sort of um, personal branding. They don't want to do any of that. You know why? Because they don't want their valued assets to be known in the marketplace. And just, well, actually, let me just ask the question. How do you feel about that? I'm trying to think of an appropriate sort of uh, comparison. Uh, it's weird to say we have a valuable asset at our business. And so we think the best way to treat that asset is to put an incredible amount of restriction on how they spend their time or their life. Like that, that to me is the easiest way to get someone who is talented to say, I'm out of here. Like 
imagine if you went somewhere and they said, you can't post on LinkedIn or Twitter or do podcast appearances um, unless it's about our company. I mean, I have more leverage than most folks, but I'd say no way. And I think given the the circumstance in, that we're in today, where it's a very, candidates have the leverage today, especially if you're good at what you do, like you'd better rethink some of those those processes and, and, and thoughts because the good candidates know their value and their worth in the market today. And they're going to go to places that support them. And part of support is actually helping someone leave. <laughs> like that's part of the game. Like if you treat someone really well, they're going to do one of two things, stay for a really long time and be a massive asset or eventually leave and go do their own thing. That's going to happen anyway, if you treat them poorly. So you might as well give them a much better chance of staying at your business. That's how I think about it. It's, it seems pretty straightforward to me, but, but maybe not. It's a little back ass words when the company is saying, hey, it's such a tight labor market. We don't want people to know about the great people that are a part of our, you know, part of our business right now. So let's, you know, let's let's put some constraints on that and tell them that they can't do personal, you know, personal branding. And it's like, are you hearing what you're saying? You know, we love we love you at our business. So here's what we're going to do. We're not going to let you grow to your potential. Sound good? That's right. You can't do public speaking events. You can't do any of this kind of stuff there. And, and uh, I'm a huge fan of abundance, Justin. There's plenty to go around. And when, when new people started at ZipRecruiter, I'm proud to say that I would say to them, look, your lifespan is going to be two to three years here on average. And I want you to accelerate and do great here so that one day you'll come to me and you'll say, KG, give me a hug. I am going on to double my salary, double my equity, increase my title. And I'd say, bring it in. Give me a hug. I'm so proud of what you've done. And I do that, Justin, because I did that uh, because I believed firmly that, you know, we're, we're just a steward in their, in their you know, career, a, a blip in time. And if we can create a great impression on them and then they go off and go someplace else. Hey, if you love something, set it free. Or like I talk about with Luke and Travis from Patient Pop, which is they let me build a brand while I was helping build that company. And now that I have a big brand, like who knows what's in my future? Maybe in 2022 or 23, maybe I'll start a SaaS business. You know who will invest in me if I start a SaaS business? Travis and Luke. And they'll, th- why not do that with all your employees? I think back to 2010, my first year at ZocDoc, I, I started in December of 09. And the people who were sitting around me on the floor there are now 37, 38 CEOs, COOs, CROs, VCs uh, that, that came out of that floor. And I can invest in them. I can help them find new employees. I can connect them with each other so they can use each other's services. Like the world is about networking. And online has made it so much easier. And if you throttle someone's ability to network, to me, that is, that is potentially the worst thing that you could do for their personal growth. Justin, for the new leaders, new sales reps, new people in the workforce uh, that, that are listening to the show, can can you give us uh, some quick tips on how to start a side hustle? Maybe three. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you my favorite tips on starting a side hustle. The first thing is to understand who do you want to spend your time with, because misery doesn't scale. You you can't scale a shitty time. So pick out like, who do you like to spend time with and what do you like to help them solve, right? That, that's the number one thing. Pick a niche. I help companies or I help people is not a niche, right? You can't help 
you can't help everyone. If you try and help everybody, you help nobody. So, so pick a niche of folks that you like to help. Once you've done that, go out and spend some time truly servicing them pro bono. Go out and set, schedule 10 meetings and say, what's the one challenge that you need help solving? Try and find those commonalities that we talked about again. After 10 or 15 conversations, you're going to say, man, seven of the people that I talked to all had the exact same problem. Great. That's the problem that you're going to fix moving forward. Okay. So now you go out and you raise your rates a little bit. You build a traditional coaching business, create content online, infotainment. You're either informative or entertaining. And it's always around that very, very specific niche. You can always widen over time. Once you sign a few coaching clients and you're making a few hundred bucks an hour solving their problems and figuring out the solution to that common problem we just talked about, then you start to scale your time. And the way you scale your time is by taking your newfound solution and installing it into a product. So rather than saying, I'm going to charge 250 bucks an hour to solve this problem, now you can say, go solve the problem on your own for $75. What does that allow you to do? It allows you to 2X your rates. So where you used to charge 250, now you charge 500. Now you've got a service business and a product business. The good thing about having those two businesses is there are certain folks who learn certain ways, self-guided courses, There are other folks who learn certain ways, one-on-one coaching. So you now have two learning styles that you can support and you can also support two budgets. So you don't have $500 for an hour of my time. Great. Go buy my $75 course. You don't want to take a course. Great. Pay for my $500 coaching. That's the whole wheel. And then once you do that, you recreate service productize, recreate service productize. By the time you're done, you have a, a plethora of products that you can offer while you sleep. Genius. Yes. And what's the best way for our listeners to find out more about you? A couple different ways. They can follow me on Twitter, which is Justin Sass, Justin S-A-A-S. They can go to my website, justinwelsh.me. Welsh is W-E-L-S-H. Or they can go learn about my my flagship product, which is the operating system to help you grow and monetize your LinkedIn. And that's at theoperatingsystem.co. Outstanding. Justin, what a great show. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, guys. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the SaaS Souls. On behalf of Jamie, KG, and myself, Pete, we thank you for listening and ask you to give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to our newsletter in the podcast notes, and you can always buy us a beer on Patreon slash SaaS Hey, it's Thanksgiving coming up, I believe. Well, whenever this thing airs, we are very thankful for our Patreon listeners out there. We thank you for listening. Cue the music. Oh, look yes. who's joining! Who's joining us here? Oh, I just decided to wake up, guys. Oh, glad to have you. <laughs> hey. hey, Justin. Good to see you. Hey. Good to see you too. How are you? I'm I'm wonderful, uh, J- Jamie. Congratulations on your new job, sir. Well, thank you. Can we can we talk about that at all? Yeah, because by the time it gets, this is what going to go next Thursday. Yeah, yeah, I'll be day two. Oh, perfect. Oh, you better rip that logo off that vest there. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious! I get a couple more days of wearing it. I think, right? Yeah, J- Justin, if you didn't didn't figure it out by the banter already, the inside information here is that Jamie has uh, accepted a new offer at another company, but it appears that he hasn't told his current company. <laughs> no, I did tell him. They all know. Everyone knows. I just. All right. Where are you going? People AI.
Do you know it at all? I know of it. I don't know it super well, but I know of the name. I'm familiar with it. But uh, is it... What is it? Um, essentially, uh, it saves sales reps all the time in the world. So it does a, it does a connection uh, into their own database or your database. Anyone you talk to, email, Teams, Zoom, it uh, populates that with inside Salesforce, all the activity oh, nice. of the sales reps. Um, nice. And it matches it with whatever level that person has in their titles. And if the title isn't there, it looks into their own database and enriches the data and shows engagement. Um, you could also do like, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, pipeline hierarchy, sort of, uh, instead of you being able to change what stage your pipeline goes into, right? It, it does like a whole interface inside Salesforce that allows you to like, Say there's certain steps and certain requirements, and then it moves it through. <clears throat> so it's say the only reps that don't like it are the reps that would be uh, that aren't doing the activity, right? Yeah. But every other rep would be like it's easy. It makes their day easier, and then every leader would be able to look at this data and say, "You do. You're actually talking to the right people. They're actually more engaged now than they were at the end, as opposed to engaged at the beginning." And it's it's not like. You know, I always say today's environment in sales rep, it's, a, it's as if um, it's as if there was a, we're playing a basketball game and at halftime no one's keeping score. At halftime, we just give all the players a sheet of paper and say, "Tell us what you did." And then you know, you find out the Lakers are beating the Bulls 182 to 42 at halftime, and LeBron James has 142 points because he self-reported it himself, right? Um, that's what Salesforce is today, and this just sort of does it without you having to lift Very good. I like it. it awesome. Jamie, so, sounds like you know a lot about that company. I bought it. I, I The reason why this happened is they came and pitched it to me, and I said, holy shit, where can I sign up? And I immediately, I, I went to our CEO at Flexera and said, we need this. We need this today. He agreed when I went through it. I, I secured the funding for it. And then two weeks later, they said, hey, we like you so much. Jamie, congratulations. Can we use any of this? Yeah, you can use it all. Oh, perfect. Okay.